brought your Bible today or a notebook, it'd be good to have. We're going to, our our series that we're going to start for the next three weeks is going to be uh, important lessons from the book of Acts. Um, So, of course, the book of Acts is very central, very key to the Christian faith. It is the only book in the New Testament that records history that actually lets, gives us a window into what the church looked like immediately following Jesus, not 300 years later when new doctrines were developing and councils and things like that. But what did the church look like immediately following Jesus? And the book, The Acts of the Apostles, is where we get our term apostolic, apostolic church. Is that means that we align ourselves with the acts of the apostles. So we are apostolic. Get it? The connection between apostle and apostolic. Just to spell that out, because sometimes people don't know what that word means, and that's what it means. Um, so don't forget that after, I, I still have to print them out, but I do have your small group lists break down. Group number one is going to be Friday. That is Tyler, Scott, Rebecca, Lily, Melanie, Carly, and Mackenzie. So group number one, that's group number one, and you're going to be this Friday at our home, 7.30 p.m., going to be a lot of fun. Also, also at 7.30 on Friday, but the other 7.30, 7.30 a.m., we are going to be doing before school prayer for those that go to Whitehall. Um, I apologize for those that don't go to Whitehall um, that probably won't be able to make it, but we will be, you can still join us in prayer uh, Friday mornings, but Friday morning, 730, um, be here at the church. If you need a ride, let me know, um, and we will have prayer on Fridays, 730, so we will have that this Friday. If you'd like to be here, we'd love to have you. If you need a ride, we can give you a ride and then make sure that you get to school on time. All right, so now let's um, get started. Uh, any other announcements that I'm missing, Sister Nikki? Did I forget anything? Okay, let's get started now um, when the book of Acts chapter number one. I'm going to be looking at today Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two uh, because that, of course, is very, very vital uh, to the Christian faith is what happened on the day of Pentecost which is also where we get the term Pentecostal. So we, are, we belong to an organization called the United Pentecostal Church. Um, so we get that, of course, from the day of Pentecost and what happened on that day. So let's start in Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 3. Well, we may just have to... I'll just start reading at verse 1, but we're going to look at verse number 3. The former treatise, have I made oath, the office of all that Jesus began both to do and teach unto the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also, so I want you to pay attention to this verse, verse number three, to whom also he showed himself always after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the thing, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, so the writer of this book is his name is Luke. He is the same author that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we know that because of this first verse uh, that he's writing to someone named Theophilus. And of course, the Gospel of Luke is addressed to Theophilus, and he said, The former treatise have I made. So we can pretty much infer that this is the book of Luke that he was talking about. So this is the same author. And all of that aside, I want you to take notice of what he said in verse number three, that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion, after his suffering, after his death, after his crucifixion, by many infallible proofs. This is the first lesson that we can learn from the book of Acts, is that the authors of the New Testament believed with their whole heart that Jesus rose from the dead. And not not only did one man believe it, but several men and women saw it by an infallible proof. It was so evident to them. And many people wrote accounts. So you can compare this to other religions that 
uh, had a, an experience. Like you could compare this to Mormonism where one man had an appearance of an angel that no one else saw and he wrote a book that this whole group of people follow called the Book of Mormon written by one man who saw one angel one time with no witnesses. Compare that to Jesus who everyone knows was a real person. There's not one person on earth that denies the historical Jesus and that he was crucified. And then there are several people over a period of 40 days that they saw, they touched, they talked to Jesus. And then they wrote about it. Multiple people wrote about it. Four different eyewitness accounts wrote about it, Luke being one of them. He wrote about it, and he said, I want to tell you, Theophilus, that this was an infallible proof. You have to do, if you want to disbelieve in the book of Acts, if you want to disbelieve in the gospels of Jesus Christ, if you want to disbelieve the story of his death, burial, and resurrection, you have to deal with the fact that so many men saw him, talked to him, wrote it down, recorded it from different viewpoints, and then they died for this story. That's hard to come by if it was a lie. Very few people have put their life on the line for a lie. The prophet Muhammad never had to put his life on the line for the angel that appeared to him one time in a cave with no witnesses. And he didn't even write it down. It just passed down to oral tradition, and he didn't write the book of uh, the Quran. Someone else wrote it based on what he had said maybe a few hundred years ago. You can compare, and he never had to die for that. He killed a lot of other people because they didn't believe in his vision of who God was. But he never had to put his life on the line. These men had to put their life on the line, which we can see throughout the book of Acts. So you've got to do something with that story, that the, these people over a period of 40 days, hundreds of different people saw him, talked to him after they saw him die after they watched him be buried in a tomb. They saw him, and he was alive. So the author of Acts, Luke, is wanting us to know right away that these are infallible proofs. These are not things that you can dismiss. These are not things that you can walk away from just because, oh, people don't raise from the dead. It's like you've got to deal with this. We saw him. We talked to him. And we're so passionate about it that we're willing to put our life on the line. You can have confidence in the Bible today. You can have confidence that it is an eyewitness account, that it is written like history. It is not written like some sort of a static experience one time when somebody had been drinking too much and been out in the wilderness too long and gone half crazy. These are people that are reasoned, that are measured, and the author of Luke and Acts was a physician was a doctor, was an educated man. And you're going to see, if you read carefully as you're walking through word before world, that the, that the church grows from just fishermen, who, which the apostles were, kind of low level, and all of a sudden great men and kings and leaders become filled with the Holy Ghost and are sitting in the church. And you can pick up on it. And Luke is one of these men. He was not a fisherman like Peter. He was not an unlearned and ignorant man like Peter and the other apostles, but he was an eyewitness that was converted, and he was a physician. And he said there's been many infallible proofs. So don't believe the lie that says that Christianity has no evidence. Don't believe the lie that it is exclusively a leap of faith. The most logical conclusion is that this had to have happened. And then the only thing going forward is what are you going to do about it? If this happened, then what are you going to do about it? So that's one of the most important things that I wanted to point out to you about the book of Acts. And then Jesus, this verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And of course, this is the central point of the first two chapters of the book of Acts, is this promise of the Holy Ghost. 
but you will be filled with the promise of the Holy Ghost. It is what Jesus came to do. It is what the Old Testament was written for. It was when the book of Hebrews says, these died having not received the promise, but having seen it afar off. It was when the day that they could know God face to face, when they could feel his presence, when Abraham was longing to know God, to have a closer relationship with him, when Moses was asking, can I see your face? Can I feel you? Can I understand you better? This was the promise that they died not having received. And so Jesus is saying that you have heard that John has baptized with water, but you will be baptized. You will be immersed. You will be uh, completely covered with the power of the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then on a second occasion in verse number 6, when they were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is a question about when Jesus is going to come back and actually reign in a political way. And then Jesus says this, and these words are very, very powerful. And then we're going to move on to Acts chapter 2. He said, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So don't worry about a lot of the details of what I'm going to do in a grand scheme. But here's what you're going to worry about. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to interact with me. We're not going to worry about political change or uh, me sitting on the throne just yet. But here's what you are going to focus on. And this is Jesus focuses in everything that he came to do on this one moment. You have to understand that when you, when you read Jesus, as the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, that his, these followers of him, they thought that he could literally take over the government. They thought that he was going to be able to kick the Romans out and literally sit on the throne of, of David, his ancestor that he was going to reign as a physical king. And so Jesus had to refocus their mind. He died, he rose from the dead. They thought surely now that he's risen from the dead, he's going to restore the kingdom and he's going to sit on the throne. And he said, you don't worry about that. God will take care of those things. But you, you will receive power. So you're going to have your own kind of power. Now, God has his power. And he's working out the big things. He's working out the grand scheme of history and the grand scheme of your life. But you personally, this is what I came to do. You personally are going to receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And this power is so that you will be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I am doing something in your life. You're going to receive the power to be a witness. You're going to receive the power to tell others about me. And that is why Jesus is still talked about 2,000 years later. Have you ever heard of a man named Judas of Galilee? Not Judas Iscariot that betrayed Jesus, but a man named Judas of Galilee. Have you ever heard of him? Anybody know him? Anybody know the first church of Judas of Galilee? Anybody ever heard of him? No. He was a man that lived a little bit before Jesus. He was from the same area of Je- of, that Jesus was from, from Galilee, from the northern part of Israel. And he was the Messiah. He was the savior of the world, the savior of the Jews. He got a band of followers together and committed a violent uprising and tried to take over the temple. He even, I think, assassinated the high priest and was trying to overthrow temple worship and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. He was claiming to be the ruler and the lineage of David and to sit on David's throne. You can find him mentioned in Acts chapter number 4. Because the Jews rightly said that Judas tried to raise up and he was crushed and nobody's ever heard of him ever again because it wasn't the truth, because it wasn't powerful, because it was something that was done by a lie. 
It was something that was done by manipulation. It was something that was done by political power. Do you think that a carpenter from a poor village in the north part of Israel with no political connections could build a movement that would last 2,000 years without some supernatural power? If you're going to reject the message of Jesus Christ, you've got to deal with that. How do you account for with no armies, no swords, no violence, only through death and this weird supernatural power is Jesus still known about today? When others have tried to crush even the power of the government, tried to suppress this message, the government of the Jews and the government of the Romans tried to suppress this message, yet we're still here today because somebody received power to be a witness. Somebody received power to tell others about him to the uttermost part of the earth. And let me just say, you're sitting in the uttermost part of the earth. We are about as far from Jerusalem as you can get, and yet here the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached because somebody received power, because somebody got the Holy Ghost, because somebody waited on God, and something happened that was the promise from Him. And it, of course, we could talk about the angels appearing and watching Jesus ascend into heaven and them saying that this same Jesus is going to return in like manner. It tells us that there's a hope of something else coming, that Jesus is going to come back the way that he went up. But we're going to move on to Acts chapter number 2 because we don't have a lot of time. Before we switch over there, they, the disciples, they gathered together Uh, in the upper room, and they, the upper room was the same room where they ate the Last Supper. If you remember that story, Jesus uh, said that a man would uh, lead them to a place and that this room would be available for them. It was not any room that they owned. It was miraculously provided by God. It was where they ate their last supper, and it was the same room that they went back to. An upper room just means it was on a second story. It was an upstairs chamber, and they were up there, and they conducted business, and they were having a prayer meeting. They chose a successor for Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, who had committed suicide, and they chose his successor to be a part of the ministry. And then they waited and they prayed and they stayed through the feast of Pentecost. And it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, if the book of Acts had not been written, we would not fully understand what happened to start the church. But because there were eyewitnesses, because there were people that faithfully recorded this in the power and providence of God, we have a window into what can happen in a life when you become into the kingdom of God. We don't have to question. We don't have to wonder. It was seen. It was evidenced. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now, I want you to understand that the word like in both of these uh, passages that I just read. There was a sound from heaven as of or like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. So sometimes if you see some of our literature of uh, maybe a track about the Holy Ghost, you will see um, the cloven, so like a split flame of fire. Um, You'll notice it on our sign out there above the cornerstone. There is a split flame. Um, That's a cloven, you know, a cleft is a split um, flame. But that and I understand why we do that, but you have to take that word like as this is an author trying to describe a supernatural experience, and so it really wasn't like you could literally see uh, fire that was split in half. We don't really know what it was, but it was like 
fire that set upon each of them. It was maybe it was something visible, like literally to your eye, or maybe it was just something visible to you could just kind of sense it in your understanding or in your spirit. We don't really know. So it was like a rushing mighty wind, as of a rushing mighty wind. It wasn't like literally a wind. So you, you, it's not like you're going to feel the actual breeze when the Holy Ghost comes on you. It's like a rushing mighty wind. And let me just tell you, somebody that's been in a lot of Pentecostal services, I have been in services where the power of God begins to come onto people's life. And you can watch it. And it is literally, I understand a little bit what they're saying because it's like a wind. It sweeps across a congregation. I grew up in a church that was over a thousand people, and you could see it. One person would start worshiping God, and the Spirit would fall on that one person, and then all of a sudden, something inexplicable would happen. It would sweep across the congregation. Now, nobody was, was making it happen. It, it was no lights, music, sound. It was just something just happened. And all of a sudden, everyone's worshiping, speaking in tongues, lifting up the name of the Lord. And you can understand what the author was saying. It was like a fire that set on them. It was like a rushing mighty wind. So we're getting this word picture of what was, hap- what was happening. And notice and what happened. So we name it. He names it. The author names it. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we know that when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, which Jesus said is the promise, it's the promise that you need to be a witness. It's the only thing that Jesus came to do was to make you receive this promise. This is the fulfillment of Jesus's life. And we know from the witnesses and the infallible proofs and the eyewitness accounts that when the Holy Ghost comes, you will speak in other tongues, not as you learn the syllables, not as someone instructs you or teaches you the syllables, not as someone shakes your head violently back and forth, but as the Spirit gives the utterance. And notice, no one laid their hands on them in this case. There are instances where the apostles laid their hands on people and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. That's why we lay hands on people. But you do not need someone to lay hands on you in order to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We are apostolic and we believe that you can be in a prayer meeting and all of a sudden the Spirit of God can fall without a preacher, without music, without a microphone, without a keyboard, that you can be praying and that all of a sudden the power of the Holy Ghost moves into a room and we can't can't really describe it except saying it's like a rushing mighty wind and it's like fire that sits upon your life and then you begin to speak in other tongues not as you learned not as your mind remembered but as the spirit gives you the utterance and you're speaking in other tongues and there were verse number five and there were dwelling at jerusalem jews devout men out of every nation under heaven and when this was noised abroad the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, this is a little bit hard to understand because we live in a very private society. If we're speaking in tongues in this room, not many people are going to hear us because we live in a very spread out society and a very private one. But that's not what uh, this first century Jerusalem was like. Very compact, very tight. Uh, The construction is not blocked solid with glass windows. So it's very likely that if the power of the Holy Ghost is moving on 120 people in a room tightly packed together, that people are going to hear it, that people that are gathered below are going to hear it. So yeah, I've been to Jerusalem. Of course, it's a lot different uh, today, but I mean, it's just very, very packed together. It's not like Whitehall where people live miles and miles apart. You literally lived right next door to one another. And so the courtyard or where they were gathered and the upper room, uh, we're, we're assuming that this was some sort of uh, close connection uh, or either that, that they, as they worship God, that it was noised abroad. So that people are saying, hey, something's crazy going on here. Come and listen, because it said the crowd gathered together. So they're gathering to the place of prayer and saying, what in the world is going on here? And this is what I want you to understand in verse number six, that they were confounded. They were confused. This is the, congreg- this is the, the multitude that was gathered together. They, because that every man heard them speak in his own 
language. Now, so this is what I want you to know, that speaking in tongues, we have it as in the example of the eyewitness account that speaking in tongues is a real language. It makes sense. It is not gibberish. It is not something that you learn. It is a language that is spoken by people to communicate truths. And the only person that really doesn't understand it is you because you don't speak it. But others may speak it. I've heard, I heard a story from Atlanta, Georgia. My friend, his dad pastors a church in Atlanta, Georgia. And, there, and in Atlanta, there are, of course, it's a massive city, multicultural to the extreme, and they have had a revival of African immigrants. Their church is over 50%, um, not African-American, African. They've had a revival. And this story of really, I don't know if it was kind of at the beginning or during this massive influx, their city has a lot of immigrants in it, but a lady who was a single mother, and she had immigrated from, I forget the nation, from Africa. And she was praying, Lord, let me know. Let me know which church is the right church for me. The cry of her heart, let me find the right church. There's so many churches in America. Let me find the right one. So she went to Apostolic Tabernacle, Jonesboro, Georgia. She sat near the back. And as the song began to play and worship began to happen, a man in his 70s, good old country boy from Georgia, you know how I know? He was wearing overalls to church. He stood up. He lifted up his hands. And her account to the pastor was that he started speaking the dialect of my home village. And she said, Pastor, you don't understand. There's about 70 to 100 people in the world that know this language. It's literally only spoken in my village. And he was saying, this is the church that you belong in. It's not gibberish. Nobody could teach that man how to do that. You couldn't wait on the right countdown, the right person in the microphone, the right person to lay hands on you. It was just somebody that had surrendered to God, that was living for God, doesn't probably, if he's wearing overalls to church in Georgia, I can probably wager he does not speak multiple languages. He certainly hasn't studied African dialects, and he stands up and God gives him the utterance. God gives it to him, and it's gibberish to him, but it's speaking to some lady that's been crying out, God, let me know where the truth is. Let me know where I belong in your kingdom. And God answers that prayer in a very complicated way that nobody could make up. Because the power of the Holy Ghost is real. It's real. That's why it's so important we don't trivialize it. And it's so important that you make sure that you wait because God will give you the real thing. It's a promise. You don't have to get panicky. If you desire it, God will give it to you, and it will be real, and it will be powerful. They heard them speak in their own language, and they were amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak from Georgia wearing overalls? Well, the equivalent, are not all these Galileans? From the crazy north part of the country where everybody lives with their donkey in a little wood shack. These are not from Babylon. These are not from Rome. These are not from Athens. These are not uh, sophisticated people. But yet they're speaking my sophisticated language. And they're just so good old country bumpkins. But yet God gave them the utterance. And it was the real thing. So the story of the book of Acts is that the Holy Ghost is real. And it comes not as you learn how to speak in tongues. You will speak in tongues because the Holy Ghost comes. It can be misclassified. Oh, you've got to, because most people, most Christians believe that you receive the Holy Ghost immediately at faith. You just receive it. You believe and immediately you receive it. And so they would say, oh, that's too much burden on people to make them speak in tongues in order to be saved. No, it's you don't have to speak in tongues yourself. 
in order to be saved. It's when you are filled with the Holy Ghost, you will speak in tongues. You understand the difference? It's not a you have to do something. It's not a you have to learn it. It's a when it happens for real, you will speak in tongues. When you really come into contact with the power of the Holy Ghost, it will just happen from your life, from your mouth, and you will not be in control of it. And you will know when it is happening. You will know when it, that's, that, see, because some eyewitness wrote this down and recorded it, we can know what we can experience. We can know what the promise looks like. God did not leave it up to our imagination. He wrote it out for us through an eyewitness, an infallible proof. And remember, these men went to their death to defend this message right here. They went to their death to defend this because they had experienced a power that said, I, 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 can't, I can't stop preaching in this name. You're going to see Acts chapter 4, they were threatened. And they said, are we to obey you rather than God? What have you done for us? When did you fill us with the Holy Ghost? When did you give us power? Nobody did that for us except God, so we're going to obey him. Is this kind of power? See, if you're trying to live for God without this, good luck. You're not going to make it. Because this world is going to come against you and going to push it back against you. And some of you may have already experienced that. Why do you go to that church? Or why are, why are you trying to live for God? Or why do you dress the way that you do? Guess what? You're not going to make it very long trying to live a completely alternative lifestyle without this real power. I mean, an alternative lifestyle where people are looking at you funny. But you, you know what you're going to say? You know what? I can't go back on this. I mean, I wouldn't have made it through college if it wasn't for this. Because I, that was the people made me feel pretty dumb for even being a Christian at all. And I had to go back and think, am I just brainwashed? But then I had to go back to this moment. And not did I just go back in my memory as a nine-year-old. And that was a pretty powerful memory. But I could go back in the experience in my prayer closet and say, God, touch me one more time. And then the Spirit comes in, and it's not words that I learned, and it's not because I'm at a conference with 6,000 people lifting up their hands at the same time, but I'm standing there next to my shirts hung up and my shoes on the floor, and nobody else is around, and the Spirit begins to move, and I begin to speak in other tongues, and my confidence rises, and I have received power to be a witness, to walk into the college classroom and say, you know what, professor? I have been with Jesus. You know what? You've come too late to tell me that these apostles were just lying to me. You've come too late to tell me that hundreds of people went to their death believing a lie and wrote it down and that he still preached 2,000 years later. You've come too late to tell me that because I've met him face to face because his spirit has fallen on me. You've come too late to tell me. You've come too late to tell me this isn't true because the book of Acts tells us that we can have that experience. How do I know that we can have that experience? Verse number 12, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. So here we get the distinction between those who see people speak in tongues and those that speak in tongues themselves. You can dismiss it if you just see others do it because you can say they're crazy. They're kooky. They're drunk. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. I know they're speaking our language, but whatever. See, see this, this shows you that, the, that, that miracles don't do a lot if you want to disbelieve. Your people are going to believe what they want to believe. And so these people saw a miracle, and they were like, nah, they're drunk. Yeah, this, this country bumpkin got drunk and now is speaking perfect Greek. Oh, yeah, that's it. he's speaking a language more complicated than his own. He's speaking Babylonian. He's never been to Babylon. He's never been out of Israel. And he's a country bumpkin fisherman. And he got drunk. And then he's speaking fluently in my home language. Yeah, that makes sense. See, people believe what they want to believe. So Peter stands up and says, no. these," And he starts speaking, not in tongues. He speaks in their language so that they can understand. And he starts to preach, lifted up his voice. You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. It's too early for us to be drinking. We're not having a party. But this is that. And so you have to understand that he's preaching to Jews. And so he starts talking about the Old Testament. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes the prophet Joel. And then he connects Jesus 
back to David. And that's a great, this is the greatest sermon in the history of the church. And I wish I had time to go with it with you point by point through this sermon because it's incredible. And it tells us who Jesus was. And those of you that are in Bible quizzing, uh, he references the book of Psalms calling David a prophet. And that David knew that Jesus would raise from the dead because he said that the God will not let my Lord see corruption, will not let my heir, my uh, lineage die and stay dead. And he says, and then he said, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Why did David call this man Lord, seeing that he would be his descendant? Because, yes, he was a descendant of David, but he was also God. So David could say, yes, he is my great, 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 great grandson, but he's also my Lord because he is God. And he's going to sit on my throne, but my throne's not going to be this throne. My throne's going to be in heaven because God's given me a promise. So he begins to preach, and it just resonates in the heart because the Bible said uh, that these were devout men in verse number 5. These were devout men. These were Jews. You have to understand the context of the sermon. That's why there's so much reference to the Bible because these men believe the Bible. Verse number 34, for David is not ascended into heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Now listen, listen to that language, the confidence. This is the same kind of language that Luke is using when he writes and says infallible proofs. Assuredly. You can take this to the bank. He, he, Peter, this is meaning Peter just made his case perfectly to all those Jews that were listening. This was inescapable. This was reason and intellect to the extreme. You could not escape and say we are drunk after Peter stands up and gives this sermon connecting the Old Testament to the New to devout Jews, to devout men that had read and studied and understood the Scripture. This would be like if Peter was preaching to a bunch of scientists, he would have had infallible scientific evidence that he could have laid out and said, this is true, and you're going to have to have a logical inconsistency if you're in your mind if you want to reject this which is what everybody that rejects Christ does have, is a logical inconsistency because the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That means the proof will be so strong that even the doubters will kneel and bow when there is no more uh, opportunity to repent. When there is no more volunteerism to serve Christ, everyone will bow because the truth will be so overpowering. But right now, it's up to you. And everyone that rejects him will walk away knowing in their heart that it is true, coming to a point where you heard some country bumpkin speak in a foreign language that they did not understand and you reject and turn away same way people rejected after they saw Lazarus raised from the dead because you believe what you want to believe but you're if you walk away from Jesus you will walk away from the best evidence that there is for you know assuredly I have proven it to you assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified that country carpenter that you thought was crazy that you crucified God made him both Lord and Christ God made this man to sit on his throne it's a mystery but God made that man sit on his throne both Lord and Christ I've proven it to you assuredly how do we know verse 37 now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were touched in their heart. It got to them, got to their life. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now that we know, now that we've seen, now that we've been taught, we've got to do something. They understood that this message needed a response. And the context is clear. What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to right the wrong of having crucified the Lord of glory? What should we do from this point? a point of faith, a point of believing. And notice, Peter didn't say, you're good because you believe. 
You're good because you believe. Now they believed. So if you, if, you go to, if you go to the Baptist church and you believe, you're good. Peter did not say that. He didn't say you're good because you now believe. They believed in their entire heart. And Peter could have said, you're done. You are saved. You need, you need to do nothing else. You have believed. Congratulations, you have made it. But Peter did not say that. And an eyewitness who heard the voice of Peter and recorded it faithfully said, Then Peter said unto them, Repent. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. Turn from your sin. It's the first approach after faith. You have to believe or repentance doesn't do you any good if you don't really believe that God is alive that you're praying to. Repentance isn't going to work. But if you believe, then you've got to repent. You've got to deal with the sin problem. You've got to deal with the issue that Jesus came and died for. That's why we say he died for our sins. Because you've got to deal with all of this stuff that you have done wrong. Deal with it. Let's deal with it. Not, don't, don't wallow in self-pity. But deal with it. Repent. most powerful thing you can do to approach God is to approach him in repentance. Yes, I believe, but now I've got to repent. Because what should we do? You've got to repent. And be baptized. Now, the word baptized, packed in its meaning, is to be submerged in water. There is no other meaning. There's, there's, no, there's no way around that. It, there's, just, there's just no other meaning than that. It's just very plain. The word baptized is to be submerged in water. So when they said baptized with the Holy Ghost, that was a metaphor for what the Holy Ghost would be like, but they had to say baptized with the Holy Ghost. If they just say baptized, it means with water. It's just what the word means. It means to completely submerge in water. So you've got to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You're baptized so that your sins will be remitted. Did not say you're baptized to join the church. And notice that the, the response is to the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? We've got to do something. And this is, you've got to do this. You've got to be baptized. It, Peter did not say if you feel like it. Or if you want to join the church proper. Or if you want to sign the roll book, you need to be baptized. No, you've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus, which is what Jesus told the apostles that their mission was to do. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore into all the earth, teaching and baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, he told that to these men that are standing there. And then they get up and they apply that, and they are telling us who the name of the Father, who the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Ghost is. Because those are titles, not a name. So when they apply that, and they're, what shall we do? You've got to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. Now this is very simple and concise because it's written by a the moving of the Holy Spirit because the, the Spirit moved on Peter to say this. But there's deep theology there of your, of your name being replaced by Jesus' name. Your record being replaced by Jesus' record. Your sins being replaced by His sinlessness which is why you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. This repentance and baptism work together. Repentance is a turning, a decision in your heart that says, I no longer want to live in sin. Baptism takes care of all the past sin. And then the Holy Ghost empowers you not to sin. This is what's happening all in one verse. That's why, you know, we why are you apostolic so in Acts 2.38? Because it is the focal point of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the focal point of the entire message of the Bible. It is the promise that Abraham waited for. It is the promise that Moses waited for. It is the promise that Joshua was looking for. It is the promise that Isaiah was looking for. 
and these died not having received it, but you have the opportunity to receive the promise and the focal point of history. And if you repent and you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and then notice it doesn't say, and you must get, you must obtain, you must earn the Holy Ghost. No. And you will. You will. You shall. You will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because for the promise. So because the promise is unto you. Because the promise that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob have been waiting on, it's unto you. You understand how powerful that is to devout Jews that have studied the Old Testament their whole life and they've heard about the covenant, they've heard about the promise, they've heard about the arc of their history that one day Jesus, that one day the Messiah, they didn't know his name was Jesus, the Messiah was going to come and that there's going to be a great promise, that there's going to be great power, that there's going to be freedom and liberty and everybody's going to live forever in perfect peace. And Peter is saying that day has come. The promise is not unto the past. The promise is unto you today, this generation, the first generation to receive the promise. It's unto you. It's unto you. Now, that, that's powerful to those men that are standing there, those people that are gathered together. It's powerful to them. It's unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's unto everybody from this point on. It is the pendulum of history. The church is transitioning from the sacrifices of the Old Testament to the sacrifice of the New Testament, which is Jesus Christ, and it applied to your life and through the plan of salvation of believing that he is who he said he is, pricked in their heart, belief, but not stopping there at honest belief. I believe in the infallible proofs. I believe in the witness of Scripture. I believe that Jesus makes sense, but not stopping at belief, but saying, what do I do to apply my belief to my life? Repent, take care of your desire for sin. Say, God, I am done trying to live my own thing. Repent, be baptized and take care of the past, remitting all of those sins, everything that's piled up against you, gone at baptism, taken care of, and then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we can imply that the only way to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost is like they had just received it. They had, Peter had literally just stopped speaking in tongues. He is not saying that you're going to receive the Holy Ghost any other way than how I just received the Holy Ghost because I've been waiting on this thing for days because Jesus told me to wait for it. And I know it came because we spoke in other tongues and you witnessed that we spoke in other tongues. So the logical conclusion is that the Holy Ghost comes with the power of speaking in other tongues. Not as you learn it, but as it, you receive it. As you receive it. And verse number 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort saying save yourself from this untoward generation. I love that. Many other words that we don't know. God thought not necessary. Because I've distilled it down. Into what you need to know. What must we do? Peter went on for a long time. Maybe he's a rambling preacher. I know one of those. Kind of rambled on and God said, he, he just said a lot of good things, but that first part, that distilled down, that's what I want the generations to know. Because God preserves his word. This is infallible. This is assuredly the truth. And if you want to walk away, you're going to have to walk over some logical inconclusions in your mind and say, well, I just, I'm just not going to believe that. It's, I see it, but I'm just not going to believe it. Everybody that walks away is going to be like that. I see it, but I just won't believe it. And it, it takes courage. It takes courage to look someone in the eye and say, you know what? You've come too late to tell me. I've seen it. I've seen the truth. And I've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. 
and I've got to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then the miracle that you can witness, not just stay a miracle in someone else's life, and you can say, well, they're drunk, they're crazy. I know they're speaking perfect language that I, that I understand. They don't, but um, they're still, they're crazy. Peter said, you can experience it for yourself. Save yourself from this untoward generation. And then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Because it's the truth. Bow your heads with me. God, we love you. Thankful for your word. We're thankful for this glimpse, God, into the founding of your church and how you want your church to look and how you want people to enter your church. God, we're thankful, Lord, that this promise is to everybody. It's not just to those select few that you have predestined or those that you have your favorites. This is to everybody that will. And God, I pray that this word, that your word would go forth as these students read it, as they absorb it into their life, as they learn to teach it to others, that you would just let your word be confirmed through the power of the Spirit in their life. And God, if there are students here, I know there are students here that need the Holy Ghost, I pray that you would begin to deal with their heart and deal with the truth of this word in their heart so that they will be filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, so that they will be convinced that they need to repent and be baptized in your name to be filled with your Spirit. God, those that maybe they have claimed that they've received the Spirit or been told, God forbid, that they have got the Holy Ghost, that maybe they are doubting whether or not they did, God, I pray that you would convince them afresh that your Spirit is real and that you would fill them with the real thing, the real power from heaven so that we can live in a power and authority of your Spirit to be witnesses, God, in our community and in our families and in our schools. God, give us the strength and the courage to go forward with what we know to be the truth and what we have received from your Word today. And God, we give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus. Be Jesus. Be Jesus.